is Jimmy Scroggins, and I'm the lead pastor of Family Church in South Florida. Welcome to the Church for the Rest of Us podcast. On our podcast, we're committed to giving you scalable ideas that you can use with the resources you have right now at your church. So welcome to Church for the Rest of Us. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Church for the Rest of Us podcast. I'm here with my co-host, as always, Leslie Bennett. We are transmitting from the office tower in downtown West Palm Beach, where Family Church is located. We're ready for another conversation with one of my very favorite leaders on the planet. That's right. I know you know today's guest well, and that he's been a huge impact or a huge influence on your life and your ministry. So why don't you go ahead and tell who we have with us to talk about the power of the neighborhood church. All right. We have with us today, Dr. Ed Stetzer. He is a friend of mine for over 20 years. He's an author, speaker, He's a missiologist and a strategist, but right now he is a professor, dean, and the executive director of the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. So, Ed, welcome to Church for the Rest of Us. Thank you so much. It's good to see you. 20 years. That's a long time, but I think that's factually accurate. huh? Yeah, it's kind of jarring, isn't it, that you can even it have friends of 20 years. It is a little bit. We were young leaders once. We were young tigers at once upon a time. Hey, Ed, why don't you talk a little bit about your ministry and what you're doing right now, because you're always on the move. God has used you in so many different ways. Just tell us about some of the things that you're involved in right now. Well, when this comes out, I'll actually be living in Oxford University, and I'll be teaching there this uh, this autumn. They don't say fall, so I'm kind of get used to the the pretentiousness. <laughs> I can't wait the, till uh, you have this uh, accent. You and Mark Dever can tra- can str- oh uh, compare gosh, accents. My, my, my wife does say that when I go overseas, I try to I try to blend too much, and so it's not so much pretentiousness as more trying to relate to people. But anyway, there you go. So I'm on sabbatical from my Wheaton College roles right now, so I'll be teaching at Wycliffe Hall at Oxford University this fall and writing a book on the future of evangelicalism and another book on mission to Western culture. Normally, I run, I'm just, I still technically am the the executive director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center, where we help really seek to engage global leaders for greater gospel impact. And I'm the husband to Donna and the father to three amazing daughters, all of whom are at college or graduate school, and we are officially empty nesters. But that's another story. I'm sure I'm very sad about that, but it doesn't feel I can, like it's, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sensing sadness at all. <laughs> are you, Leslie? Right. No. Okay. Well, Leslie's an empty season. nester also, and I'm just an aspiring empty nester. When you have eight kids, you just it takes a long time to get there. <laughs> yes, it does. Well, it's, uh, that'll do. You have like when you have 14 of them, as you're blessed with. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a lot right. of kids. Well, I'm down to three left in the house, so okay, we're moving that direction. Anyways, Ed, we're talking a lot about the neighborhood church, the concept of the neighborhood church. It's important to us at Family Church, and it's important to a lot of pastors and leaders that listen to this podcast because a lot of them are in smaller towns or their church is in a suburb or a lot of them, you know, have have a smaller staff, you know, medium-sized, smaller-sized churches, and the neighborhood church is a really important concept. I wonder when I say this term neighborhood church, how that grabs you if you've been thinking about that. I'm just interested in kind of your impression of the concept. Yeah. So it's a good question. It's, I mean, one of the things, you know, sometimes like people who go to family church, they, people who go to a church are not aware sometimes that this is unusual or an outlier. And so what you're doing is unusual and an outlier, but I think it's, it's important now, now when I say unusual outlier, I'm talking about where a large church seeks to engage neighbor. I mean, all the large churches say we're trying to you know grow larger and grow smaller at the same time through small groups, things, groups, things of that sort. But I think what is one of the unique things about Family Church that is an outlier, is worth talking about, so I'm, I'm glad to talk about it with you, I think it's fascinating, is 
the idea that the family church, the now that there are there, it's not the only one. And so, you know, we, we know about some people taking a parish model. There are different ways to express the neighborhood church approach. But I do think it 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 does make sense, particularly, and I, you know, this is probably my unique angle because I'm writing a book on the subject. I think one of the reasons it makes sense for churches to be on mission in their neighborhoods with their neighbors in proximity to them is when the broader culture has a negative perception of the church, what happens is it becomes, well, Newbegin talked about it as an apologetic of the gospel. It becomes an apologetic of the gospel that, okay, I might watch on the news and think those Christians or maybe those evangelicals or whatever it may be are just not like me or for me or share my values. But then I've got these neighbors and they're they're making a difference in our community. They're they're people I drop my kids off to school with, or or they're people that go to the homeowners association meeting. So I do think one of the ways to push past the culture's resistance and percept resistance to the good news of the gospel based on a perception, a negative perception of the church and evangelicalism as a whole, is when we engage our neighbors in neighborhood-based churches, small groups, whatever else it may be. Well, I really appreciate that because if it's, there there are some kind of networks or families of neighborhood churches that are maybe, if, you know, in the aggregate would be considered mega churches, such as New Life in Chicago, or what John Tyson used to lead, Trinity in, in New York City, or what's happening here at Family Church. So there, there are some of, some, some of this going on, but the truth is, I see the local church intended to be all the way from the New Testament as an outpost to the neighborhood. And it requires geographical proximity as well as sort of an incarnational investment with a group of people in this neighborhood. So from that perspective, Ed, don't you think that really every church of any size could posture themselves as an outpost and a miss kind of a kind of a, a mission to the neighborhood? Every any church could posture themselves as a mission to the neighborhood. Yeah, I could. I, if they chose to do that, I could go along with that. I, I just don't think that for many there's a sense of how do we do that. So what happens is they're become like you. You. you I was actually with Paco Amador from New Life Church in Chicago just yesterday at the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. So that was in my mind when we were talking about it. But I think what has to happen is we have to look at the patterns. The patterns as we see them now do not lead to that kind of neighborly engagement. So what is the intervening action that's going to help individuals in the church engage in neighborly ways? Now, you can do that individually. I'm really a big fan of the the book, The Art of Neighboring, Building Genuine Relationships Right Outside Your Door. Pathak and Runyon wrote that. Pathak now leads the vineyard. I think that that is that gives a sense of here's how I might do this. I, in, in Christians in the Age of Outrage, I wrote a whole section on what I do in my neighborhood and how I seek to engage my neighbors. But I think that the kind of intervening variable is you're not just saying, okay, everybody be a good neighbor, which I think everyone sort of says that, but you're creating Mr. Rogers said that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he did say that. But you're creating structures and systems that cause people to look into their communities. And I think that's what I think the churches miss sometimes. Sermons do not create neighborhood engagement. Sermons plus systems can create neighborly engagement. So back to the original question, could churches? Yes. Do they? By and large, no. Right. And so I guess what I would like to do, let's, let's talk about for a minute something you brought up. You said that you have a strategy. You've written about it. 
that you use in your own neighborhood. Would you share that with us? Sure, sure. I wrote in Christians in the Age of Outrage. I just turned to the guy who was like promoting his own book on someone else's podcast twice. That book is like <laughs> it's fine. several years old now. The great thing everyone about go buy on, it. It's hot. Yeah, exactly. The great thing about writing a book on outrage in 2018, it has not gone out of style. So uh, there's there's that. But in there, I wrote that when we moved to Nashville, and we continued the pattern here. But when we moved to Nashville, actually, it wasn't when we moved to Nashville. We were there for a little while, and we kind of. I mean, here I am flying around the country telling people to live on mission and show and share the love of Jesus. And I got really like talking about it a lot and not doing it as much as I used to. I was the interim at a couple of churches and a teaching pastor in Nashville. So I decided, you know what? I got to get beyond this. I got to get back to where I was before, not just being the speaker and the writer on this. And so Donna and I sat down and we made a map of our neighborhood. Now we happened to live on a cul-de-sac. So we just kind of, you know, drew out the houses and we knew these people were Christians and we knew these people were Christians. So we took the eight nearest neighbors to us who were not Christians and over now, again, this is not a, a Saturday experience. We didn't go out and do, you know, go tell everyone on Saturday, but over three to four years, we sought to, I mean, the commitment we made was we prayed and we asked Lord, give us the opportunity. First, we want to build a relationship. That was easy and evident. But then give us the opportunity to share the good news of the gospel with these people. So we actually, over the course of three or four years, had the opportunity not just to invite them to church. We invited all eight of them to church. We we shared the gospel with seven of eight of them. The one neighbor on our facing the house on our left didn't like my kids. So my kids were there to kind of get, get, get off our lawn, kind of, you know, and we, we didn't have a fence and the ball would go over there. You know, my kids were smaller at the time. So, but that, it was fine. But in doing so, we invited them over. We built relationships. We became friends. And in the context of an intentional neighboring relationship, we were neighbors in the sense that you might have thought of in the 50s when you sort of, you know, we didn't have fences in our yards there, but in sort of like you look over your back fence, invite someone over for a barbecue. And we did that. And then, you know, the, the neighbor three doors down on the right, I had the privilege of sharing the gospel with both husband and wife. They trusted Christ, baptized them. And see now the kids walking with the Lord. It's 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 a joy. The neighbor to the right and one door behind. Wife was a believer. He was not. He's now a follower of Christ. The first group I mentioned actually became part of our church, but the second group, the, the second couple, our church was kind of rock and rolly to them. They were like European, like literally from Europe, European, and so we ended up getting them in a wonderful Bible teaching traditional church. So to see that and to engage that, you know, to the left, two doors back, they're still kind of thinking through, but we actually had to have to share with them and to pray with them for clarity. So I would say that intentionally, strategically going through, looking for those gospel opportunities makes a difference. And that's that's what we did as neighbors and neighboring. And that's just so countercultural right now. So it really is a great strategy. But even when we practice that in our own neighborhood, you find that people, it's a little odd for people because we're so, you know, pulling to your mm-hmm garage and shut the door and never speak to your neighbors. I feel like that's where we are in South Florida, maybe not across the nation. So it really is countercultural for us to reach out in that way. So I do think encouraging people to come up with an intentional strategy, it sounds almost silly, but at the same time, I feel like our culture is at a place where we almost have to do that. It's countercultural in that in the last few decades. You can actually see it in the architecture. You mentioned South Florida, and I, you know, I love South Florida. But here, I have a house that's 127 years old. So we have a front porch. You don't have a lot of front porches in mm-hmm. South Florida. You mainly have back decks. Mm-hmm. So you go from the sense that you go into your garage, like I have a garage, but it's not an attached garage because it's an old house. Sociologists have all this cocooning. So people now, they have home gyms, they have home theaters, 
They pull into their garages, shut the door behind them, go to their back decks. The entire system is created now to keep you away from other people. And the end result is, is that it is a countercultural strategy to actually be a neighbor today. And where that wouldn't be the case, I, I grew up in Levittown outside of New York City, and we knew everybody on the day, on the street. You know, it was all small houses, neighborhood. Now it's all McMahon, McMansions and places in South parts of South Florida, parts not. But the whole system is created to keep us away from one another. But and I'm not, you know, I, I think those are cultural things that wane and they ebb and they flow. I'm not convinced that it's a, a plan of the de- of the enemy to keep us away from people. But it is an unintended side effect of our affluent lifestyle is we have stopped neighboring. And in the name of Jesus, I think we need to to break back into the pattern of being those kinds of neighbors, not just for the gospel's sake, but for the world's sake. You know, if we believe things like work for the welfare of the city, here's a great way to work for the welfare of the city. Know your neighbors. Yeah. So that's crazy, right? Those, you know, and even the idea of faithful presence, James Davidson Hunter talks about this. I mean, be a faithful presence it's in your neighborhood just makes a difference. Yeah, I think that's really important because, and Ed, just as a missiologist, if you think about the church's throughout church history, almost all of them have been neighborhood churches. If you think about all the churches that are active right now around the world, almost all of them are neighborhood churches. You really are talking about a particular slice of time and in a particular socioeconomic kind of an environment that creates a megachurch possibility or even, you know, this this disconnection as churches, if, the more we see ourselves as outposts in a neighborhood to a group of people who live in proximity and the way we work towards incarnational connection with our neighborhood beyond, hey, will you come to my thing at my church? I think it does create all kinds of opportunities for evangelism and, and missions. Yeah. yeah, I would say that you're right. That it is historically anomalous that we this the system and structure we've created. Now, to be fair, even what you're doing, where you're functionally, organizationally a megachurch, but relationally a neighborhood church. I think I just made up those words, so I'm not sure if that's how you describe yourself, (laughs) but I'm going to go with it. You know, you have to remember, so none of these were options for, so to say, you know, throughout history, sure. Well, 2000 years, they didn't have the automobile. And then you get some, you get some large churches like, like the Moody church, but the Moody church, you know, mostly pre-automobile, you were in a big city. So you need huge urbanization or the automobile. Now, here's the thing. It's, we're watching the news and, you know, when this podcast comes out, who knows where the war in Europe will be. But we're, we're at the conversation we're having in the UK is, you know, what if there's no gas? What if there's no heat? So, mm. I mean, so the whole system could revert to be a neighborhood church. So, so I think the question is, what did we miss? And I think this is, I think part of what you're trying to, you're trying to advocate is what did we miss when we, when we stopped being a neighborhood church? But I would also be very careful to say, what did we gain in efficiency when we were able to create systems and structures. You know, you have a central office, all that sorts of thing. So you're enabling neighborhood churches to focus on neighboring, where if you go to a little parish, you know, 300 years ago in Derby in the UK, they didn't have the resources. They were just all on their own. So neighboring with the empowering that comes from a community and a structure, I, I think I think gets the best of, of both worlds. No, I, I do as well. But I also think... I just think your point at the very beginning was that Christian individuals and families have to take this initiative, be countercultural, which requires work and intentionality to do this incarnational kind of connection and make that happen. 
but I do think that that's the job of pastors and churches. And whether whether you live in a, a small church in a suburb or a big church in an urban environment or, or out in a rural environment, I think all of us have this opportunity to create incentives, training, encouragement, everything yeah. that we can to put people into this incarnational mindset. And I think the more we do that, the more powerful the more powerful yeah, I, this concept I, I don't can disagree. be. I don't disagree. I would just say that 500 years ago, people weren't thinking that way because they already were living incarnationally. Right. They all, right. you know, some small village in, you know, in wherever. And so I, I think that the modern world has de-neighbored us. Yeah. And I think one of the, it's got to be a missional impulse of the church to, in a time when the culture is moving away from relationships that, that therefore the gospel does not get transmitted. The communities do not get, get impacted. I think ultimately that this is one way, back to the earlier question, is that we can live counterculturally. There's not a lot of ways right now that people, there's not like 50 ways that are available to us that the world's listening to. You know, if you go back to the 80s, engaging people, getting, you know, churches sped up the music and spruced up the buildings <laughs> and, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, and boomers came back. And, and I, I just think a lot of that is days gone by. So what's going to be the way to engage people who are not open now. I mean, still people, some, some people are, so invite your friends to church. I'm not saying don't do that, but those numbers are declining. So if you project out 20, 30 years, it could be the primary, if not only way we're going to engage people is through relational networks in neighborhoods, workplaces, communities, those sorts of things. Yeah. And I want to go back to what you said at the very, very beginning. You said because of the cultural resistance to evangelical Christianity, that's sort of embedded in the whole politics, the economics, just sort of the, the cultural ethos of the day, at least in terms of popular culture. I do think that this is an important way that churches can establish some credibility. It kind of goes back to even like when you meet needs in a community, there are genuine needs. People often will let you meet them, even if they don't like everything that you believe. Yeah, no, no question. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we did a, I did an article for USA Today and, you know, if you, if you went through all the way through the pandemic and didn't quote something from past history of how Christians responded in times of health crisis, you have <laughs> failed as a pastor. I'm sure that I'm sure that all the listeners did that. But I, I quoted Eusebius in USA Today, which was kind of fun. I, I quoted Philippians 3.20, dropped some Bible, little gospel. I loved it. But what Eusebius said is that after, you know, one of these health things, one of these plagues, that he said the quote, uh, the, the, not quote yet, the Christians quote, Deeds were on everyone's lips, and they glorified the God of the Christians, unquote. So let me say it again. The Christians, quote, deeds were on everyone's lips, and they glorified the God of the Christians. So what I would say is, is that people have to know you to see that, to engage that. Now, now again, I think that in the large church, what we do is we do big things, we, and we, we say, we got to get the world's attention, so let's pay off everybody's medical debt, which, which again, I'm, I'm, I'm for that. I'm for that. That'll make the local news. Can I just tell you that you can make the local neighborhood Facebook page weekly by showing and sharing the love of Jesus? And again, still pay off people's medical debt. I think it's a great thing. I'm not against that. But it does sort of speak at we're trying to say, look, we're doing good, but let's be the kind of people who do that in community. You keep using you keep using the word incarnationally, which is which is good. I use the word incarnationally, though we have colleagues who would say that only Jesus would be the one we'd refer to as incarnational. So for those who maybe that word's not familiar to them or not comfortable, it's representationalism. So, and that's actually what some people in theology who don't like the word incarnational say, representational. So either way, we are, to use a kind of thing you'd hear in the song, a song in the past, we're the hands and feet of Jesus 
when people see that, we don't have to tell them. We don't even have to put out a press release that we did this, but they see it and it raises the question, why? What's going on with these people? And if we do it with joy and we do it in the name of Jesus, they'll put those things together. And again, it just doesn't mean that doing good deeds is, is evangelism. It's not. But from there, it opens doors and bridges to share the goodness of the gospel. In this conversation, you've already mentioned a couple of resources that people might want to take a look at if they're not already familiar. The Art of Neighboring, an excellent yeah. book that would point you and your congregations towards this concept. But you also mentioned James Davison Hunter. Is there any other resource that immediately come to mind that you would direct our readers to if they're interested in thinking more about this idea? Yeah. So of course, James Davis Hunter is a bit of Hunter is a bit of a beast. That's not light reading on how to engage your neighbor, but just talking about faithful presence was one of the things that came out from there. I think ultimately, you know, I'm, I'm involved in something called the He Gets Us campaign, and part of what we're trying to do is there's a media campaign, it's the largest faith based media campaign in history. Probably most people listening have seen it. I was just at the White Sox game, which, as you know, my knowledge of sports ball is not exactly <laughs> strong. And but I went because it was he gets us stuff, and so there was an error on the field, and all the all the signs flash and say Jesus forgave errors, which I thought was kind of funny. Though I don't know how I would have felt if I was the baseball player who <laughs> just made the error and all the screens. Anyway, but again, that's the that's a media campaign that some some Christian leaders are underwriting and want to do. But we're working with them at the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center, and I work some with them called Glue to actually help churches and individuals use those opportunities to so for example there's going to be a there's going to be an ad run in a very large football game that you can't say the name of legally but everyone around the world's going to see and i think ultimately for people to engage in acts of ministry and service to say you know there's actually some you know i have a hat that kind of aligns with the campaign and say well what's going on i saw i saw that on that sports big game that i can't mention the name of on a podcast legally what is that about? Well, we're, you know, we think the Lord, he sent us to, to, you know, whatever we want to say it, probably don't say the Lord, he sent us, but something where you can <laughs> articulate that in a way that points people to Jesus. I think of evangelism, again, with the, your whole theme is not evangelism, but I'm very passionate about that. Evangelism has fallen on hard times. Part of the reputation of the church, part of the fearfulness of Christians. I think that part of us being those gospel witnesses is being in true neighborly community with others, not just to share the gospel with them, but because that's part of what it means to be a Christian. But I think there are opportunities around these themes, and I'm very excited about He Gets Us, that we can actually point people to something more that motivates us to be the kind of neighbors that God's called us to be. Yeah, that's really good. I think we'd have to do, it's a both and for sure. I think about, I had a neighbor who had a lot of health issues, and I was always helping him in the name of Jesus, but a lot of other people were helping him. And I realized unless I express the gospel to this man as to why I'm doing this, it really isn't that different than other good and well-meaning people. So I really liked, again, Pastor Jimmy keeps on saying, referring back to something you said, but something you said that struck me is it takes the sermon and it takes systems. So yeah, we have to be leading people, but we have to be putting systems in place I don't know if there's any churches that you think or any examples that you think of that are doing that well. Well, it's the the combination of the two. Systems is the tricky part. So systems are complicated, and most pastors and church leaders are not systems thinkers. So here's what I would say. It doesn't have to be systems. If you're, you know, we love small churches. If you're a pastor in a church of 60 in Montana, 
and you're you're probably just living this out. You probably listen to this podcast. Maybe maybe you wouldn't even be listening to this podcast. You'd be like, of course we're going to be neighboring. You know, I'm out hunting with people, and I'm out. I live in the neighborhood, and I you know someone gets stuck on the side of the road, we pull them out with the truck. That's just who you are. What I would say is, if you're in that kind of setting, it's sometimes hard to be aware just how cocooned life is in outside of rural areas in major urban cities and in suburbs mm-hmm. and just how challenging it is for churches there's churches actually and there was actually a whole move towards this you know they built they built bowling alleys and gyms and sports centers and basically yeah. it was let's keep away now again I, I let me be very careful not everyone did this way but it became for many people an unintentional side effect let's keep away let's create our own orbits that we we kind of we kind of orbit around the church and the community that's there and I, and I would just say, boy, what a what a miss for, to quote the message, I don't know if it'll get us in trouble for quoting the message, it'll probably get a letter, but you know, Eugene Peterson's John 114, you know, he moved into the neighborhood, he's moved into the neighborhood. Well, we got to move into the neighborhood with Jesus on mission. And I think ultimately in churches like yours and mine, it requires systems to do that because there's a certain centrifugal force that pulls us in. Mm. Now, excuse me, it's a centripetal force, a centripetal force that pulls us in. That's that inward pull. And I think sermons and systems can help create a centrifugal force that propels us out. And I think that makes the difference. Hey, Ed, I'm so grateful you're willing to be on this podcast with us today. It means a lot. And I think- How can that- I not be on the most important podcast that my friend- <laughs> we, we have tens of listeners, man. I really appreciate you being on here. But anyways, I know that this conversation is going to be very encouraging to many people who are listening. And I do commend Ed and all of his books and his writings and what's happening at Wheaton College. You can check him out there. I think Ed's pretty easy to find. Just Google it. But anyways, thank you so much, Ed. And I hope this conversation is encouraging to our listeners because we want every one of our listeners to think of themselves and their church as an instrument in God's hands to reach the neighborhood where God's planted you. And you can do it with the resources that you have right now. God's empowering you to do it, and we want to help. So if we can help you, reach out to us on email, uh, give us a call, reach out to us through social media. We want to do everything we can to be a blessing and an encouragement to you as you do everything that God's assigned for you to do in your neighborhood. Anyhow, I'm Jimmy Scroggins signing off for Ed Stetzer and Leslie Bennett. This has been Church for the Rest of Us. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. I'd love for you to check out FamilyChurchNetwork.com to chime in on our blog or follow me on Twitter at Jimmy Scroggins. We want to connect with you and learn from you because we're in this together. We're all learning from each other. We are church for the rest of us.